and it's, it's heavy and you try and talk to people about that stuff mm. and try and talk to them about loss of land language and cultural practices yeah well they're three like huge topics to talk about yeah that are really heavy but when you see the images of these people mm. and read their their personal stories is like people are moved to tears yeah people would walk in and see the exhibition and just start sobbing Hi, I'm Ty Snaith and this is A World of Her Own, a series of conversations with Australian women artists I respect and admire. Today I'm talking to the larger-than-life artist Marie Clark. Marie has a presence that glows. Her smile is contagious and when you talk to her about her work, her eyes light up and twinkle like stars. This conversation is recorded in Marie's house, at her kitchen table, which also doubles as her studio. So there's a bit more background noise than usual. Marie has been on quite the journey, from growing up on a mission in northeast Victoria with her parents and grandparents, to travelling around and living in a tent and sleeping in a suitcase on the banks of the river as a kid. And now she's working on numerous large-scale art projects all over the world. Her heritage as a proud Muti Muti Yorta Yorta and Boonwurrung Wemba Wemba woman informs her rich practice, which is truly multifaceted and contemporary. We get pretty passionate in this episode, so a warning, the next 40 minutes of chat might bring up some big feels. But that's what's magic about Marie. She really makes people think about what it means to know who you are, where you come from, and who you're connected to. And more importantly, she made me think about how I can use my work to make a difference going forward. I love the way Marie aligns herself with a very down-to-earth, traditional notion of having no separation between her art and her life. She incorporates ritual, ceremony, grief and healing with a kind of universal wisdom that speaks beyond languages and cuts straight to the heart. Today, I have a great privilege of speaking to artist, visual artist Marie Clark, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but um, Marie is a Yorta Yorta Muti Muti Boonwurrung Wemba Wemba woman. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Awesome. It's <laughs> a long, that's a long intro you've got there. I know. Well, I've, I've included my father's country and not a lot of people sort of do both sides of the family. So, yeah, right. And I do. So that's good to kind of record, to, to have yeah. that up front. Yeah, yeah. And it's good for the, the kids, you know, the the nieces and nephews coming through so they know who they are and where they're connected. Yeah, because quite often that's something where you might know one side and not not necessarily the other. We're connected to two of the biggest families, so the Briggs and the Edwardses. Uh So I don't know if you know, heard of Kutcher Edwards? Yeah, yeah, right, Um, so Kutcher, So his father, my father, brothers. Oh, So that's like a huge family. Oh, what an awesome family. You know, Carolyn Briggs. Yeah. So right. her mother and my grandmother were sisters. Ah. So it's like huge. Oh, wow, mm. that is, and quite um, productive and influential as mm. well. Mm. You know, like. On both sides. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> Your kids must be like thankful that they've yeah, got Yeah, or that. the nieces and nephews, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Mm. Oh, so you don't have kids? No. Okay. No, just lots of nieces and nephews. Yeah, yeah it's so. good. And you're clo- really, really close. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And so, for people that don't know those those families or where they're from, that's like, is it? Am I right in saying sort of northeast Victoria? Yeah, we grew up in Mildura, but before moving there, we sort of started off, I guess, in Swan Hill, moved to Bell Ranald, where we lived on a mission, mm-hmm. and this is your grandparents, your my grandparents and my and parents, parents and I, mm-hmm. oh. and two brothers. Mm-hmm lived in a tent down by the river and my bed was a suitcase so I say I was born to travel (laughs) so um, I made a a work called Made From Memory Mm. Um, and that I created and first time ever I'd done it um, some lenticular prints Mm -hmm. so lenticular prints are the ones that you view from Remind um, me, I don't exactly know. So what it's are. layers of photographs, oh, so right. it looks yeah. like it moves. That's right, sort of like um, the hologrammy things that you yeah, used to get. Yeah. yeah, well, I did a hologram after I did the lenticular prints. Um, 
So I had to go and borrow a tent from yeah. the scouts up in Mongjura because it was a beautiful big old army tent. Yeah. And I've got the big trunk there that oh, represented wow. my suitcase. And you recreated my bed. it. Um, so that's it. Oh, that's so cool. So it looks almost like you can sort of move. So it's 3D, oh. um, which was fantastic. This isn't great radio, but that's for, for yeah. the people listening. It, it's like a real-life photograph that, that moves from side to side almost. Oh, that's really awesome. So you can almost imagine that, like as a viewer of the artwork, you mm. can imagine that feeling of being in that place. Yeah, so these are now out at Monash University in the library. Oh. Um, the Clayton campus so you know that was pretty amazing just making that work and then after that I think I made a, a photographic hologram where I had to engage a physicist because I don't really understand the technology no, I'm not um, no. and I had a whole team of people I'd been you know buying all these bits and pieces pre-1967 to recreate my grandmother's lounge room pre-1967 for the Defying Empire, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander show. Um, exhibition up yeah. in Canberra. That was a big show, wasn't it? Massive. That was huge, yeah. massive, it was fantastic. Yeah. So I had them build a room, three by four metres, for my holographic photograph to go in there. And my physicist had gone up there, you know, to make sure the lighting was just right and perfect. Yeah. But when you walked to the door, you couldn't really see it. You had to walk into the room and it sort of unfolded. Wow. And it just evoked all these memories for people of all the different objects that I had in there. Mm. And then when I finally saw this photograph of my grandmother's lounge room, it was very minimalist. Mm. And the lounge room I'd created was full of all this fantastic <laughs> stuff, which is, you know, half of it's in the lounge, yeah, some stuff out there, stuff it's just too, yeah. full of, you know, I've got excess of everything here because it's all, you know, to do with my art practice. Yeah. So. And those memories are really important. Yeah. I mean, obviously for your practice, but for for you, you know, as a as a First Nation woman, mm. that those memories are so yeah. important for us to to see and yeah. experience as well, because mm. that's like the history of of this place. Yeah. You guys. Yeah. And it's um, I mean. You've got there's a, but you've got a really interesting practice, don't you? Because it's not just one type of work. Oh, you've got no. so many different ways of working. Mm, mm. Well, I think you know I started off making jewellery, mm. like painted um, timber and jacaranda pods and mm -hmm. collecting seeds and Beautiful. you know making all these. So yeah, started off up in Mordura making all this stuff, supplying the Koori Heritage Trust. Oh, they have probably one of the biggest collections of mine and my brother's um, jewellery mm. and this, this was using echidna quills and wow. you know all the natural materials mm. so my smallest brush had like two hairs mm. so you could imagine how fine mm. that work was and then came to Melbourne to paint the first green and gold tram advertising the Koori Heritage Trust oh, wow. and that was in 1988 so going from this little tiny winny brush to, to a big fat brush with, you know, um, that other paint, that really sort of heavy, hard paint, yeah, yeah, like enamel apple. paint, yeah. was like, just killed my wrist for the first couple of weeks. But so that was pretty fantastic. And then basically been working as an artist ever since. So scale all of a sudden kind of got... It just went from, you know, these tiny winny little mm. pieces to, you know, the tram to billboards and... Mm. You know. And for you, was that to do with like opportunity? Obviously, you're presented yeah. with that, and then yeah. you took it. Yeah. So you're yeah. a real opportunist as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, being a practicing artist, you can't. You have knock to be, back, don't you? Yeah. You know, work. No, so, no. you know, and I did a lot of work with my sister-in-law, um, Sonia Hodge, mm -hmm. and you know, she's still up in Mildura working at a gallery, practicing, um, and I stayed on in, in Melbourne and just, you know, kept going. Kept going with the flow. And just, yeah, opportunities came, so you just had to take, take them. Him. And so you do other work as well, am I right, in thinking in terms of programming with festivals and... From, you know, doing my own art practice mm. and then training as a photographer for a couple of years with mm. Viva Gibb, who um, passed away last year. Mm. 
but she taught Kim Kruger and I through the Victorian Women's Trust. Um, that would have been oh, in the 90s. Yeah, so that was really good. Mm. And then went on to work at the city of Port Phillip. Mm. I was their career arts officer there, uh-huh. the first career arts officer. So that's where that sort of began? Yeah, sort of working in festivals yeah. and organising events and engaging with other artists. And Which is really important work. Yeah, so it wasn't only visual artists, it was, you know, writers and mm. performers and musos and, you know, that was fantastic. Yeah. And then... And do you still do that kind of stuff? I do, sort of in my other role as a, a curator out at the Windermark Gallery, yeah, that's right, yeah. where I co-curate with Megan Evans, and that's we're right. both, you know, Megan's full-time practising artists, but we, we both work at the gallery three days a week. Yeah, you're busy. It's insane. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's always, you know, five or six projects on the go. And so in our role as curator, we're mm. programming exhibitions and booking now into 20... 1920 wow. but we always try and have other musicians or spoken word at our exhibition openings cool. um, I've always been interested in that too like yeah. I, I think oh, I started cu- um, curating and programming for next wave festival when oh, I first started yeah. out I did that for six years and it, it's interesting at my openings I always like to have either yeah spoken word a poet or someone yeah, playing a song yeah. I think it's that full roundedness yeah, of having because it's not separating like mm. visual art and performing art mm. it's like it works really well together it's intertwined it keeps yeah. and it kind of makes it alive yeah or something. Yeah, yeah yeah interesting it's interesting i think that often we we um tend to feel like we have to put our work into a box yeah. but it seems like you don't feel like that way at no, all no i don't like boxes no <laughs> they're boring aren't they but your work it, i mean even just embracing or starting from jewellery and growing in that way mm. but but also I think to make your work is quite it's quite political in a lot any way you can read lots of your works are political well, but see, I don't beautiful. think about that when I'm making it no and I don't sketch and I don't write oh really so I think an just... awful lot I could think for months about my next you know body mm. of work or artwork or and know, then you just make it and then I make it so there's no but, in between bit there no what about no. writing grant applications? No. Oh. No, I don't even do that. You I get, get someone else, else to do, do that. Like, you know, I'm not a writer. Good, good on you. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, just specifically going into some of the, the necklaces, because mm. uh, I just find this process fascinating. Mm. We talked about it before, but for people listening, um, the ones that that are just, for me, take me, just <laughs> make me go, wow, that's incredible. The kangaroo tooth yeah. necklaces that you make and the process of making them. Um, so I think I made, with Len Tregoning, the first one, yeah, a few years ago. That was a matter of, um, I was part of an exhibition at the Melbourne Museum. Yeah. And I thought for that, that show, I'll make a kangaroo tooth necklace. So I went mm. in and, um, had a look at the collection of kangaroo tooth necklaces they had in there. Because it's a traditional type of necklace. Well, yeah, I would imagine that... You know, people of a high status in the tribe would have had one because the kangaroo only has two bottom incisor teeth. The bottom, big the ones. two bottom teeth yeah. that you can use in this necklace. Uh-huh. So, if you're making a 75 tooth kangaroo tooth necklace, mm. and not every kangaroo that you stop at has two good teeth, oh. it might only have one. The other one might break when you're pulling it out. So when you say when you stop at, you've got oh. to find these so yeah, the not alive, obviously. Is, you know, basically getting in my car here. Yeah. And I can drive from here to Hay to Nelequin, you know, Broken Hill, Muldura, back to Melbourne. That's one trip to source my materials. Right. And that's basically stopping at every dead kangaroo and pulling their teeth out. And how do you get their teeth out? You have to wear your bloody boots. <laughs> <laughs> Take pliers, tin snips, tin snips to cut the jaw, the flesh, the flesh. Um, yeah. Or once they become sort of a bit mummified, it's mm. sort of like leather. So you you've got to cut all around there and yeah. pull the whole jaw out. Just with like a plier, just <laughs> yeah, out. Wow, yeah. And I 
tend to take the whole jaw mm -hmm. because they're really beautiful sculptural objects and also every kangaroo that I stop at I yeah. photograph it before we take any of the objects and so yeah we do all of that then you also have to make sure maybe sometimes you can get a tail yeah. of which Len used to um, pull the sinew out yeah. and on the website there's um, on the Cultures Victoria website there's a short film of Len and I putting together a necklace in the backyard yeah. and his pulling the sinew out. Wow. Um, and, and so they use the sinew for... To bind oh, each tooth. Into the... to hold it in place. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you so, use another part of the animal. So the whole thing, the whole necklace is made from the kangaroo. So you're oh. using kangaroo leather. Mm. As a base. Then little bits yeah. of kangaroo leather, sort of shaped like a U to put the tooth in. And then, yeah. Yeah, wow. Oh, so like that's that. the sinew so from that's the animal. the sinew. That's um, incredible. So when it dries, like you cannot, you cannot pull that tooth out. Oh, so strong. Yeah. Wow. And, and so that was used to like sew possum skin cloaks, you know, for binding the teeth. It was used for, you know, the stone axes. Yeah. And like the handle to connect that to the, the handle. It was used for that. It's so strong. It's almost like silk or stronger than yeah. like a yeah. yeah thread. Wow, that's amazing. And so, so these, so traditionally these these kangaroo tooth necklaces were made by women. Um, or both. May, both, I would say, mm -hmm. because the man would have gone out and collected the root, yeah. brought it back. You would take the teeth, you would take the sinew from the leg mm -hmm. and the tail. Um, and there's another part of the kangaroo that you can use too, mm -hmm. which is the pelvis bone. Wow. So the pelvis bone would have been used like a knife, like a scraper to scrape the fat off the, um, the, the pelts. And then if you're lucky enough to find pelvis bones stuck together, yeah. they look like masks. Because oh, it's a and double. <clears throat> it's a double. Mm. And one pelvis bone and you can see how oh my gosh, your, hand your hand fits into fits it fits in and there's like three blades on it wow and it, it's just perfect that's a tool yeah. it's amazing but from an animal mm. so these things are something that i mean you were taught obviously. no just no? um i guess from making the kangaroo tooth necklace mm -hmm. and len len and i worked at the Korea heritage trust mm. and um and we, I wanted to make this necklace. So mm. after doing the research and, you know, reading some, some other bits of research where the men would go out and collect and the women would probably, you know, put them together and stuff like that. Yep. So there's a real men's and women's Do the fine motor in, kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it's a team team effort. Yeah. Does, am I right in thinking you wrote like your masters or researched your masters on the the making and belonging? Was it something um, along those lines? Um, passing on cultural knowledge and creative art practice. Okay. So, so everything that I do, yeah, I pass on to you know that next generation, whether it's my own nieces and nephews, mm. but I also do a lot of art mentoring. Mm. So every year I work with. Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and I show those kids like the whole gamut of stuff that I do that because I don't just care. paint, I don't just make jewellery, I don't just make holograms holograms or <laughs> 3D prints or you know super-sized 50 metre river reed necklaces yeah um, you can it's do... just whatever yeah and this is interesting I mean my practice is like that too mm. and I think um is a type of almost like a type of confidence you have to have mm. in order to maintain a practice like that yeah. where you keep yeah. every facet alive yeah. and going and a lot of energy you need yeah. a lot of energy to yeah. keep feeding every every part I know <laughs> I don't know where it comes from but you know I tend not to sleep an awful lot I tend to th you know think but you can't overthink things no yeah because then um, it's boring yeah and I guess you've just got to stay focused mm. and sort of once I can see my work in a gallery setting mm. I, I just make it and so once you mean once you can imagine it there yeah then you just like go you forward. can visualize it yeah. in a space yeah 
Um, and once you've got that opportunity, you just go yeah, without thinking too much. It. And I, so, that's a yeah. great, I mean, and that's great advice really, isn't it? Just to like get the opportunity, really visualize the thing without mm, being, yeah. getting too worried about what other people will think. Yeah. Or, yeah, and then you just can't, make you it. can't worry about what other people no. think because it's if you start doing that, you're you going to start anything. doubting yourself. Yeah. And I, I just don't go there. I that's don't amazing. entertain those thoughts. <laughs> So I have to stay really positive and focused and you really have to know what you what you want to do yep. and where you want to go with that work and then you just do it. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, my whole house, as you can <laughs> see, you know, from the front door to the back fence is full of, you know, all the bits and pieces that you might need. Yeah. So if you want to get up and make an echidna quill necklace, there's a whole quills. box of quills oh, there. A Tupperware container of echidna um, quills. Not many people have that I on know. their kitchen table. Or, you know, there's another container there with kangaroo teeth or, oh my gosh, you amazing. know, Whatever there's you leather like. bits. Or if you want to sit down and draw, there's, you know, mm. the... The stuff you need. The pastel pencils there, or there's paint over there if you want to paint. There's canvas out in the shed. There's. It's just all at your you fingertips, know. and that's that's mm. how you need to be happy. Yeah. That's what you need to be yeah. happy. Yeah. And sort of when the kids used to come down for holidays, my nieces and nephews, this table would just be covered in plastic, and you know my little niece <laughs> would get up and say, "Auntie Ria, I want to paint today," and it's like she'd just sit there, and I had these tiny canvases, mm. and I went to get the acrylic paint. She said, "No, I don't want to paint with that. I want to use ochre." Oh, so we had to crush up all this ochre and mix it up and she sat here and did but the most beautiful it. little paintings. Yeah. yeah. Like everything's here, but all the ochre's out the back so you can yeah. just crush it up and But isn't that true with kids? I mean I've got two young boys and I find um we've got I mean I've got stuff lying around everywhere as well, all sorts yeah. of different things yeah. and they often they don't go in my studio. But if, yeah. if they ask they can and they choose something to use. But mm. the thing I say to other parents is if if you don't have it there, they're not gonna use it. Like yeah. if you just have shitty textures and yeah. crappy paint. Paper. That's all they're going to make. Yeah, if you've yeah. got other things like clay and yeah. beautiful paints and paper and things, yeah. then they'll... Well, we've got clay, we've got, you mm. know, um, I let them use my canvases. I'll mm. buy them specific little canvases to paint. Like You're a good artist. I had a whole bunch of those small square canvases mm, and beautiful. they will just you know sit and paint and so that's gorgeous. fantastic and you have to create those opportunities but don't you think also as an adult you have to remember what that's like as a kid in order to inspire your, yeah. your own practice like well see own... I, did, I didn't do that as yeah, a kid right. um i don't know went You're to a big school kid. <laughs> wagged you know as often as i could all that sort of stuff uh -huh. um, but you weren't creative as a young girl or, or like a teenager <sighs> No, not really. I think I used to daydream an awful lot. Oh. Mm, That's interesting. Like you're thinking now, that's yeah. sort of the same thing, and yeah. it's eventually turned into making something. Mm. That's really yeah. powerful. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing about your practice that I um, was fascinated in is all the really incredible work you've done around mourning mm. and yeah. grieving and mourning. Can you talk a bit about the, the caps? Um, yeah, in 2010, Bindi Cole curated an exhibition called Naya Bunya mm -hmm. at the Art Centre and the exhibition was around life, death and spirituality mm. and I didn't know what our traditional mourning practices were so I again I went and did all this research mm. and um, Leonard helped me do that research and I'd gone into the Melbourne Museum mm. and saw I think 85 of their Kopi morning caps. Mm. So Kopi mm. is a w another word for um, gypsum, river clay. Ah, like the white, the white clay? Yeah. yeah really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's quite heavy. Mm. And so women would sometimes cut off their hair or weave a net of emu sinew, wow. like the kangaroo sinew. Yeah. And after looking at the ones at the Melbourne Museum and in South Australia in, in their collection mm. and looking at the different weaves on the inside of these caps, you could almost start identifying where these different caps were from because there were different weaves different from different techniques. areas. Huh. And, wow. and I also got permission off elders to make this work because, you know, I'm replicating these traditional morning cap so I spoke to my elders mm -hmm. um, and then I, I initially worked with 38 
Aboriginal women to represent the 38 tribes of Victoria. Mm. Some I made in the backyard here, but the others, when the Koori Heritage Trust was in King Street, mm. every weekend for a few months, um, Shannon Forkhead came with me and um, You'd make I'd photograph everybody like and make their cap, but using plaster bandage. Mm. So that was the initial. Then I'd bring them home and I would plaster them. And so this dining room table, which extends, was full of 38 caps. And then I got everybody's story of loss or mourning. Mm. And they could tell as much or as little as they liked. Mm. And um, that was exhibited, yeah, at at the Art Centre. Mm. So it was a compilation of three, like, two by 1.2 metre prints. And then I went up home back up to Mildura, mm. back up the Murray, mm. where this practice was from. Mm. And it was after a flood. And I had the work van. My brother came with me and we went down the river, he with a chainsaw, me dragging these huge big sticks, you know, out of the mud, measuring three metres. And he'd cut them to three metres, load them in the van, <laughs> drove them back to Melbourne, straight to the Melbourne Museum where they had to be frozen really? um, to kill any bugs. Oh, yeah, yeah, so right. this was going from the art centre then to the Melbourne Museum a couple of years later. And what were the sticks for? They were to represent the huts that were ah, built where women would sit in and wail and the deceased would be placed in the bottom so there'd be a platform where the women would sit. Wow. And then at the end of your mourning period, mm. which is anywhere from like two, two weeks to like six months, mm. You would take your copy off and place it on the grave and then you were free to move on. So you would wear it for that whole time? You would wear it wow. all that time or until it fell off your mm. head. Um, and because then you're carrying the weight of your grief mm. and that is really, really powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. Because you can feel it as a physical thing, not just yeah. as a mental, emotional mm. thing. Because and then you're letting it go almost, yeah, passing yeah. it. Yeah. So when I was doing my research, mm. I also made one weighing about three kilos, four kilos, mm. sat in my chill-out space outside mm. for about an hour with this, you know, cap on my head, and you feel it sort of bearing down mm. on your neck and your shoulders, and, mm. you know, it's really heavy. So that was the 38 women, and I had them dressed in long black dresses, which represents our morning practice today. Mm. Everybody had that white morning marking across their eyes. Wow, how powerful. And then I had it on a bed of red dirt, which is the practice where it was from. Mm. So the whole piece talked about loss of land, language and cultural practices. And which is something that is everywhere happening, you know, yeah, at yeah. a rapid rate that yeah. I'm sure you're fully aware and of. And I'm, you know, like I've now travelled that exhibition to like several countries around the world. Wow. It's been exhibited in different forms all over the place and it's always relevant. Oh, of course. Work. It's like yeah, yeah. it will be one of those timeless pieces of work, Forever. I think. Mm. And um, Where does it belong? Is it owned by a... Is it, is it yours still? It's mine. That's yeah. good. And... You know, I've sold different versions yeah. of it, mm-hmm. um, the photographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're That's particular good. sizes and That's stuff. That's a good and way to do it. Mm-hmm. The NGV will be exhibiting all 75 <gasps> photos for amazing. Frontier Wars. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so I just went in the other day and had a look at the proof sheets and mm. the beautiful paper that they're going to be printed on. That's great. And they're going to frame all 75 photos, which mm. I've never, ever seen all 75 oh, as individual photos framed, for goodness sake. That's great. You know, in the gallery it will look pretty powerful and spectacular. But the essence of that work for me is like, is that, is almost the performance of it, isn't it? Mm. Like, mm. and I guess in your culture that performance, like it's living, living your work. I mean, yeah, all these there's things There's no are, separation. No. You know. Which is so beautiful. Yeah. And all these things are things that you can either wear or that you use mm. or relics of your life of mm. what you you know that's that's yeah. something that i think western culture has lost yeah. is that we make things to collect and put them away mm. and mm. we don't actually use them but mm. it's such a beautiful kind of integrated way of thinking about mourning it's like mm. a as a beautiful yeah thing that continues to this day yeah. you're mourning so yeah. many different things yeah yeah it's and you so know beautiful. i guess 
having lost three brothers, mm. like really close together, a mother, sister, cousin, like, and a nephew, mm. and then several, you know, young ones committing suicide and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like, it's huge. Mm. So, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, making this work and, and then sharing those experiences, mm. but also from the ritual and ceremony series. Mm. So going from that to then creating healing workshops yeah. using this same technique. Last year, I went to Canada for three weeks and then went to Geneva mm. to run two workshops and um, go and research some other kangaroo tooth necklaces in the collection there. You know, they had a copy in their collection in Geneva. Really? An original? Yeah. yeah. Oh. You know, I did a workshop with artists, art therapists and people that work with recovering drug addicts. Mm. Um, but it was so powerful and my translator, as I'm talking through my um, my PowerPoint, mm. just started crying. Really? She was just sobbing. So I had to stop, go over, <laughs> give her a hug. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it's really it's emotional. Really, and it's really yeah. confronting. I mean, I yeah. think connecting with, with your culture, mm. with Indigenous culture, the art has been the most powerful tool, mm. you know, yeah. that we have. And it's yeah. so lucky that we yeah. have it. And yeah. it's still so alive. Mm. You know, even, I mean, the first time I saw Bangara or mm. that mm. kind of experience that I cried and I, yeah. I had my little boy with me. And I remember just thinking, well, this is so powerful yeah. that this yeah. can be happening without any words mm. yeah. as well. Like yeah. this, this is mm. something that we can all understand mm. without language, mm. which, you know. And I think you can talk about so many different things mm. through art and people can pick up on what that's about mm. and you don't even have to speak the same language. Yeah. When I took it to Cuba, people saw this work and were so moved to tears by it. Mm. I don't speak Spanish, but they get the work. Isn't that amazing? And I love that. Mm. I've taken it to Italy. They get it, you know? Mm. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> it's and the it's... power of art. And to be able to mm. talk about different topics and subjects and all that sort of stuff through art mm. where if you sit down to have this conversation, mm. it can get steered in all these other directions and people aren't really listening sometimes. Mm. But once you look at a piece of art and, you know, you can start pulling things from that. Yeah, And it's maybe it's also amazing. that thing where it's not... I mean, maybe people switch off sometimes with text or with, mm. with speaking mm. because mm. they're... They're like, nah, I don't need to hear this. Yeah, or they assume yeah. maybe. Mm, Whereas mm. with art, it's there's a magic yeah. that's intriguing mm, where you... And mm. I guess it's beauty, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. It's a powerful thing. Because when I did ritual and ceremony at the Melbourne Museum, mm. which is when I, I worked... So I worked initially with the 38 women and then I... Um, when Carolyn Martin was at Bunjalaka... Mm and she invited me to exhibit there so i said well if you want my work you have to paint that whole gallery black because <laughs> mm. i wanted the work you know i already had in my head how it was going yeah. to look um and i ended up working with 45 aboriginal men wow and so to get their stories I've of so in the morning yeah yeah and then i went to the Melbourne Museum to learn how to make scarves. So mm. I was going to put scarves on all the men's chest and on the arms. Mm. But I was working with like extra small to 7XL. Mm. So that was my range of men. Wow. So I ended up designing seven t-shirts with my interpretation of scarves. Mm. So black t-shirts with, you know, white designs yes. on them. And the guys could select whatever t-shirt they wanted to wear for the photo shoot and you know again people walked in and I created sort of this space so that and I got all of my nieces and nephews down from Aldera. The older kids taught the younger kids in this one afternoon the dancers. Mm. So one of the older nieces and nephews had you know two or three other smaller nieces and nephews performing with them so they would follow their lead. Yeah one of the biggest openings I've had at the Melbourne Museum in the foyer mm. because I wanted, I didn't want everybody just to be in the space. I wanted them to be out here in the world. to have this performance. Mm. And then I wanted the kids to lead them in so that they were entering this sacred space. Wow. And it was so powerful. It wow. was like, 
moved yeah. to tears. Because you were just actually yeah. taken in personally by these yeah. kids. Yeah, and so they led the way and then they stood like a guard of honour and people just walked through. Mm. And yeah, it was it was pretty powerful. Mm. And, you know, from the lighting to everything, you know, I'm a bit of a control freak <laughs> when it comes to my work, but like in a really respectful way. Of course. And people... Like, because I, I have a vision of how it's going to look. And when you're working with a group of, you know, amazing installers and, and a whole team of people in there... Are that, the control freaks. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it's their lights and, yeah, yeah. you know, but, you know, I had half the lights turned off because I wanted certain things sort of highlighted and, you know, just the way they worked with me on realising that dream was just fantastic. Oh, that's so exciting. I mean, I think yeah. that... that that thing that comes up all the time is just opportunity. Like mm. more opportunity yeah. will make more change and yeah, yeah. all of that stuff yeah. is really important. I don't usually interject like this in the middle of the conversation, but at this stage, we actually stopped to have a cuppa. Things got pretty intense and I found myself on the verge of tears more than once. After a break, we started recording again and I brought up the idea of the importance of scale in her work. The river reed necklaces oh, so were based on um, the traditional river reed necklaces mm. that Bunurong people made and gave them to people passing through country huh. as a sign of safe passage like and friendship. Wow. And so for this exhibition, North, South, East and West, um, I decided to supersize those necklaces and make them 50 metres each. Mm. So I've since made like, you know, probably six or eight 50 metre river reed necklaces. Wow. And so all of my materials, so the necklaces, every fifth reed has two feathers. Mm. So again, like the kangaroo teeth mm. and all the bits and pieces I need for the kangaroo tooth necklace, we go out and collect the reeds go for another big drive looking for dead birds, collect them, pluck them, wash them, prepare them. Mm. So we've made galah feathers, green parrot feathers, yeah, whatever, whatever birds we find. And then last year I made um, a black river reed necklace with crow feathers mm. for my morning necklace. I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh. Is that it's, your favourite? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds yeah, like that's yeah. And so at work, when I go to work out at Wyndham, mm. all the crows sit in the big tree outside. Mm. So when I turn up to work, there could be some crow feathers on the oh. ground. I've collected enough to make another um, necklace, which is... Oh, wow, that's so beautiful. I'm just, for those mm. listening, I'm looking at a picture here of a giant necklace that's made all in black, hung in front of a photograph that's kind of intense mm, yeah <laughs> um, I'm sure people can look up your work online but it is I think it's so impressive that you can just kind of take a process that is from like making do or, or collecting things in your environment but take it to a scale that's um, quite impressive you know like it's huge well, if I made it made that necklace like five meters or mm. ten meters you know it's a five or ten metre necklace sitting on the wall or mm. suspended. Don't see that But once day. you supersize things, mm. like, people take notice. And that's a bit of that wow factor Yeah. when you see it. And then it might inspire people to go and do more research or whatever. Well, yeah, it's funny that you say that. Like, I think that, that trigger at the moment, like, that's where we're at, isn't it? Mm. To inspire people to research their own history. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And for me... I, I get it, like I'm constantly thinking about that. I live on the Merry Creek and I walk the Merry Creek every day and mm. there's not a day that I don't walk the Merry Creek and think about you know, you know, what was, what was yeah, yeah. and what would have been if that treaty stayed in place, you know, mm. Mm. What, what that place would be like. You know, mm. for one, it wouldn't be polluted. And, mm. But it's mm. still a beautiful place. It's still yeah. a magical place. Yeah. But, but now I just want to, I mean, maybe it's something that comes with age. I want to dig deeper into my history. Mm. But mm. like you said, that maybe art can inspire people to dig into their, mm. you know, that yeah. how and do we do that? <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. It's just, I guess, keep making and 
making interesting work and hopefully it's something where people will go and, you know, even with the art mentoring I'm doing with VACA and, you know, some of those kids might not necessarily know their background Mm. and, you know, their traditional designs. Mm. So it's a good opportunity for them to then start that research. Yeah. Um, And that goes for anybody. I know, you know, early on before the museum digitised their collection. Yeah. I was one of the first artists in the late 80s, early 90s that went in after they digitised mm. on this little tiny winnie computer and looked at like 10,000 objects in a day. Wow. Just by scrolling through. Yeah. I then printed off the different regions of Victoria, mm. all these traditional designs, mm. and then years later, like in 20... Was it 20... 2000 and six for the Commonwealth Games, mm. Vicky Cousins, Lee, Derek, Trina Ham and myself worked with every Aboriginal community in Victoria teaching possum skin cloak making. Mm. That research I'd done, you know, years mm. before was, essential. was so relevant to those communities yeah. in giving them back designs from their own areas. Yeah. And some people were saying, oh, my God, my art makes sense to me now. Yeah. Because they were doing that subconsciously. like Without the real... Doing those designs. <sighs> but when you showed them, oh, my God, it was like... That's an epiphany, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. it, cause you can then sort of own that as yeah. well because mm. that's, the, that's history. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, you guys do that so well because mm. it's you have to, you know. Mm. But, yeah. but what I find kind of confronting about my ancestors is Mm. that or the people now that are in my situation which is like fifth generation Mm. Australian so Mm. from from settler stock Mm. you Mm. know for me it was from Germany and farmers but I need to know that stuff like I need to know what those people did Mm. but how do you inspire other you know white people to actually go back and and actually have some ownership rather than just shame and rather than Mm. just thinking oh it's easy if we just sweep that yeah you know like just ignore that because that's absolutely crazy not about making people you know shame or feel bad Mm. but just acknowledge Mm. that this happened and own it yeah you know because the only way we can go forward is say to us get over it no because it's not that easy you know you're carrying this burden yeah and this grief like maybe we should all be wearing copy morning caps that weigh several kilos yeah to remember and just see what that feels like that's the grief yeah and it's the weight of that and the thing Mm. that i've found really um hard to get my head around is you know reading all my family history Mm. it's all so positive it's Mm. all like you know, these are all the great vegetables they grew and the things that they, and how they cleared the land. And the whole time I'm thinking, yeah, but there's not one mention in all these books of what was there or who yeah. was there. I was like, wow. oh, the fertile riverbanks of the Latrobe or whatever. And so, but the thing is like, your history is so heavy and hardcore. It's like, why can't we rewrite our history so that it's not a complete whitewash, you know? Because I have to dig for that stuff. Because otherwise you, we grow up, we grew up just going, oh, it was like, you know, pioneers were great. They were so productive and they did all this stuff. But it's like read between the freaking lines. Yeah. And you won't even see a mention about Aboriginal people or if there is, it it's was like mission. the savages, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. But, but that's, I mean, for me, I find it really inspiring the work that you do mm. because it makes me want to take ownership over that and actually mm. know that mm. rather than mm. just know the stuff that the white bread that we were fed which is yeah. just yeah it's just not okay yeah. you know yeah and it's not enough for anyone that's hungry properly hungry yeah but the power of art you know particularly the art that you make well that lots of people make but mm. but your art is really really powerful as a trigger for me to sort of think well I make art mm. and I want to make art about you know the positive things in my life all the negative things yeah. I mean the morning yeah. the morning work is such a good example because yeah. it's heavy and it's and it's, it's heavy and you try and talk to people about that stuff <laughs> and try and talk to them about loss of land language and cultural practices yeah well there are three like huge topics to talk about yeah that are really heavy but when you see 
the images of these people mm. and read their, their personal stories is like people are moved to tears. Yeah. People would walk in, see the exhibition and just start sobbing. Because it's the truth. At um, the Sovereignty exhibition last year that Paula yeah, um, it was a great curated. Mm. And I had that um, other piece, Born of the Land, where I'm buried under like yeah. 300 kilos of dirt yeah. and I'm coming out. I rocked up to the opening. Mm. Someone came up and said, Marie, um, can you come and talk to this woman? She's Ever since she saw your work, she's sobbing. Yeah. She was sobbing her heart out. So I had to walk up and console her and give her a hug and say, it's okay, you know. Yeah. But that, I mean, that's sometimes but involuntary. But we to do that. Yeah. yeah but yeah. We, you shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. That's the thing but is that... My work sort of does this thing yeah. to people and... And that's a process of healing, though. Like, that's mm. a process yeah. of us kind of coming to terms with the fact that we... that. You know, mm. our ancestors did that, but mm. that's really, really important, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't feel like you should have to be a counsellor, <laughs> but at the same time, your practice is so generous that that's mm. because you're in that position because you can, mm. you know, because yeah. you're a big enough person to. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing and just, you know, but even when I go do this research and do this research, you know, overseas, and mm. when I first went to Pitt Rivers um, Museum at. Oxford University mm. and to see the kangaroo tooth necklace, the pelvis bone scraping tool which I'd never seen before um, and other objects was really emotional yeah. because I'd seen these in, in books and photographs mm. but I hadn't seen the object because I didn't have these in the Melbourne Museum and the kangaroo tooth necklace was different to the ones that they have in there. Mm. It's amazing though isn't it because it's there and it's mm. yours yeah. like that stuff is yours but yeah. it's because of the break in you know what happened mm. you have to relearn that mm. like you have to relearn that but yeah. in some ways I think even as white Australians we have to relearn I mean we're all from somewhere else yeah. so yeah. I don't know anything about my German ancestry or mm. my but mm. But we can choose to relearn that if we want, or we yeah. can go on kind yeah. of in ignorance. Mm. And that's the thing is that it's not just your people that need to relearn it, it's also us. Like, mm. You have a choice, we didn't have a choice. What, that's right. Um, and no, you didn't have a choice. that's where the difference is. So yeah, for sure. people to be rounded up and put onto missions yes. and told they're not allowed to practice their cultural practice, they're not allowed to speak their language, mm. moved off their traditional lands, and then you know, for my own family, my mm. grandparents were drovers, so they didn't live in town. They, you know, lived on the outskirts. And there's this story in our family where my grandmother was taken to Kudamundra. Mm -hmm. My great-grandfather, in his horse and buggy, went up there and got my grandmother back. Really? Which is why they lived, like, you know, in the... Took tin, her back. Yeah, got her back. Amazing. Don't know how, but he did it. And they just were then like fringe dwellers and, and that was like droving. Of, yeah, yeah. Like gypsies. Yeah. Like moving around. Yeah. And just sort of keeping ahead of the, the welfare, I guess. And, you know, my grandfather taught my mother to read, mm. you know, out bush by reading the newspaper. Amazing. And I think she eventually went to school and probably, you know, finished in grade six or something like that. And they just sort of kept moving around. But that type of defiance like mm. that your grandfather had is yeah. what preserved yeah. your yeah. families and that's why they're such strong, mm. incredibly productive yeah. families. And but, you know, just always being very protective yeah, yeah. of our nieces and nephews and yep. you know, brothers and sisters and Yeah. Know. And to this day you're still yeah. I mean, you're oh, so, super protective. You love them like, so much. Oh my god, they're just beautiful. <laughs> We, um, I've got to probably go soon and yeah. we've been talking forever. <laughs> oh my God, look at the time. <laughs> but um, I just mm. wanted to say, like, is there anything that you want to add for, for people um, following your footsteps um, in terms of advice of how to keep that um, momentum going? Mm. I think whatever you do, you have to sort of just do it with a passion and just love what you do, mm. you know. I absolutely, I can't tell you how much I love what I do. 
so yeah, I love it. I just so love good. it all. Oh my I god! You know, I, <laughs> I live, tell. eat, and breathe this stuff every yeah. day, and it's so and just, inspiring. Yeah. Like it's just so inspiring wherever you come from. It's like mm. you, just to see yeah. an artist that has a practice that you can just do what you want, and that you're influencing so many other people. Mm. And I love waking up every morning, you know, with this new idea or. You know, just keep thinking and making and creating and dream. Mm. Dream as big as you can dream because I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank mm. you so much, Marie. It was an absolute yeah. pleasure. No worries. It's been great. Can't believe that time flew so quickly. <laughs> yeah, it does it. Marie is such a powerful woman and the only person I know that has a Tupperware container of echidna quills on her kitchen table. I love the way that she makes me want to cry happy, thankful tears. I'm just so grateful that a person like her exists. What a legend. She is so right when she says, my work does this thing to people. It's really inspiring to hear about Marie's process of rediscovering and relearning the crafts and practices of her people in the past, and then resharing them with new generations of Indigenous people today, and how that has become an integral part of her practice. The way she prioritises passing on skills and recording stories is hugely inspirational for me. I love the way she says, I don't sketch and I don't write, but I think an awful lot. I could just think for months about my next work. This idea of incorporating dreams into your plans seems simple, but it's actually very powerful. And the pro tip from Marie that I took away? Staying focused and having a vision. As she suggests, visualise where your work will end up in a fancy gallery, or in public, or in a book, with the frames it deserves, the right lights and the right team to help make it happen. Marie never worries about what other people think of her and her work. She says you shouldn't doubt yourself for a second. Just get to work and make those dreams come to life. This conversation was recorded for the series A World of Her Own as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It was recorded by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. If you enjoyed exploring Marie's world with me today, you might like to delve into some other worlds by downloading more episodes directly from the ACCA website. Visit www.acca.melbourne where you will find the World of Her Own link under Programs or from SoundCloud if you visit soundcloud.com forward slash ACCA underscore Melbourne. I would like to give a big thanks to Beck Fari for audio post-production and Melbourne musician Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album The Ocean of Everything.